Welcome to Resilient Entrepreneurs. It's the podcast where we celebrate the stories of successful entrepreneurs who've overcome challenges and setbacks to build thriving businesses. And in this episode, we will be talking to Denise Carnahan. She is passionate about Africa and her business focuses on education and sustainable tourism in East Africa. Her company is called Helping Hand Africa Tours. She takes guests on authentic, immersive African adventures where they experience the rich culture, magnificent wildlife, and of course, the breathtaking beauty of Africa. And then they return home with lifetime memories, new friendships, and more often than not, a deep-seated yearning to return to Africa. Having been to some countries in Africa, I know exactly what that feeling is. Denise, a very warm welcome to Resilient Entrepreneurs. Thank you very much for having me. It's really nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And, you know, it's very clear to me, and I think to anybody who will spend five minutes talking with you, that your business is very much led by your passion. Tell us, how do you do it? It's passion, and passion drives. And I am very driven by my passion for Africa. My husband and I have a primary school over there that we established back in 2014. So we're very passionate about the school and um, our children at the school and the staff. We have a lot of friends in particular in Kenya now. It's, it's our second home and I, I just love to talk about it and I just want to show everybody how my Africa, that's what I call it, my Africa. Yeah. So tell us us all a little bit like how it started, because you're originally from New Zealand. How did you get connected to Africa? Where did that begin? Uh, Well, it's a long story, so I'll I'll try and keep it short. But um, it all started back in, oh gosh, I think it was the year year 2000, I think. My son was doing a a project at school on family roots, and we discovered um, at the time that my grandfather was actually half African and we never knew. He um, passed away well before my brothers and I were born. Um, But I kind of, hearing that, uh, my mother just kind of dropped the bombshell really and we had no idea. And so that sent me on a enormous, I went on on a rampage, I guess, to try and find family, how, where we belonged, where did they come from, all of this stuff and all my life since I was a little child I had this amazing thing about Africa and I always just put it down to the what loving the wildlife the people maybe fascinated me you know completely different culture I wasn't sure when we got that information the penny dropped and it just all made so much sense so I went on this rampage and and uh, did find family in South Africa and connected with a second cousin and from there, we just connected with that family there. And so my grandfather was half, he was a coloured. And here we are, you know, very white skinned. <laughs> um, anyway, in 2009, my husband and I went to South Africa to meet the family. And we spent three months travelling through Africa while we were there. I really wanted to go and see more of Africa. So that's what we did. And we uh, spent some time with the family in South Africa. It was absolutely amazing. I just felt so at home. And then we we joined a, an overland trip and off we went. I think we travelled through nine countries and we ended up in Kenya. 
And for some reason, I think I probably know the reason, uh, Kenya just grabbed me at the heartstrings. And so I just fell in love with it there. And so we got back to New Zealand and I'd already made plans to go back the following year and do some voluntary work. My husband, Chris, who's just a, an absolute <laughs> trooper because he just goes along with all my crazy ideas, he was very supportive of me going back to Kenya. He wasn't keen to go and work in an orphanage and he said, no, we've, we're, I've done my time with babies and things. <laughs> so I went for three months and I really loved it. I just felt like I belonged there. And along the way, I moved from the orphanage that I was volunteering at and moved into a teenage boy detention centre for naughty boys aged from about 11 to 19. I really loved it there. I just loved it. I loved the boys. I loved everything about it. And so I told when I was obviously in communication with my husband um, every day. And so when I told him I'd moved to the detention centre, he was very keen to come over and, and um, do some work with the boys and sort of mentoring and teaching them basic skills. So we went back um, the following year <laughs> for another three months. I was very fortunate at the time that where I worked, I had a very understanding, amazing boss who kept giving me three months off every year to follow my, my passion and my dream. So we went back to Kenya in 2011 now. And we were having coffee, uh, Chris and I, with a Kenyan friend who I had met at the detention centre. He was a teacher there because they had a little couple of hours of schooling every day. And when he left, I said to Chris, wouldn't it be cool if we could build a little school in a slum in Kenya? In a slum somewhere. I mean, we I had realised and seen the desperation for education in a developing under, you know, country like Kenya where schooling is just key and there just isn't enough schools. And so we had been given some money from friends and things to spend, donate here and donate there. So we pulled it all together and we built a little school. And it cost us about $3,000, New Zealand dollars. And we had the school up and running in two months found a plot of land with our friend Ayub's help because we wanted him to run the school. And this is the naive part is that we thought, well, we'll build the school for, say, 50 children, and then we can, that can be our contribution to helping the underprivileged, and it cost us about $150 a month to run the school with two teachers and very basic, very extremely basic in a very poor slum area um, in Nairobi. So we built the school and on opening day there were 117 kids at 8 o'clock in the morning and uh, so we quickly realised that the school was blowing out from our 50, you know, that we'd planned in our mind and that these kids could not, you know, they couldn't work, fun uh, function properly um, in this, these cramped conditions. So we were heading off to Uganda to do some backpacking and before we left Kenya, I said to Ayub that when we got back to New Zealand, we'd do some fundraising and send it over to build another lot of classrooms. So that's exactly what we did. And we built another three classrooms. So now we had the new three classrooms and two classrooms from, from the original building. 
I went back to Kenya to see how it was all going um, six months later, and we had 300 kids. Wow. And it quickly dawned on me that how naive we were thinking that we were going to have 50 children, and that was going to be it, you know? These kids, this is how it was for children in the slum wanting, so desperately wanting to go to school and their families. Our school was set up for needy children and first time educate, first educated in their families. So parents would do anything to get their children to go to school because to them, education is everything. And if their little child could have an education, it was going to impact on the whole family. So we had these other teachers that had appeared and they were literally volunteering their services at the school. We had no idea back in New Zealand that we had all these kids and all the staff that weren't even getting paid. And it was terrible. So our children, uh, Hayley and Craig felt sorry for mum and dad because suddenly we had this this project (laughs) that was blowing up. And um, so they set up a a private sponsorship scheme amongst friends and family saying, for goodness sake, we need, mum and dad need help. Can you pay $10 a month into an account? So they did, and that just snowballed and snowballed. And we have, at one point, we had 115 sponsors, so we had about $1,500 coming into the account every month, which paid for the school. All the running of the school, the teachers' salaries that we found were volunteering. There was no way we were going to have that. And it was all working really well. And then in 2013, so two years after the school we founded the school. Chris and I were over there, and um, there were 400 kids and 12 staff. But that was okay. Oh. We, we literally had to put a massive stop to it and with threats that we were going to have to do all sorts of things to just curb the, the population explosion <laughs> at the school. And sadly, in 2013 on that trip, we discovered that our trusted friend had been mismanaging the money, not our money, not our sponsorship money that we were sending, but he was charging the, the parents and caregivers a lot of money to have their, their children at our school. And that was not the case at all. That was not the plan. And that was, you know, but he clearly saw an opportunity and he, I stumbled across this, all these receipt books and discovered what had happened. Long story short, we tried to get him out of the school It was very, very difficult. Our visa was running out and all sorts of things. Uh, There were all sorts of, um, the police were trying to get onto him. It was just a nightmare. We had one guy at the school who was teaching, who uh, was putting himself through university. And so he was teaching at the school and he was like the senior uh, teacher, Tony. And um, he was the one person that we had to trust we had to leave Kenya you know our visa would run out and we needed somebody to to help us to try and get on top of this horrible situation so Tony came on board and we got went back to New Zealand he fought to get him the AUV out of the school and I think eight months later he came to Chris and I and said unfortunately I think you're going to have to walk away he said, unless you want to come here and fight through our court system, he said, you're going to have to walk away because this guy ain't moving anywhere. 
He was just falling wow. yeah. into the school. And then what Tony had discovered was that um, this guy Ayub had had the school registration transferred into his own name. So we would have to go to Kenya, go through the courts, get the everything cleared up. And so we took Tony's advice and it was it was absolutely devastating. Devastating. And we got to know the families, the kids. We had a gorgeous little community going on there and it all just fell apart. So that was 2013. And I think we were really sad for quite some time. And then I wasn't finished <laughs> with um, this whole thing. I just wasn't. And I suggested to Chris that we start again and with Tony. And I quietly talked to Tony and said, how about we start a new school? And he was very hesitant um, and said, I need to think about it. And then he came back to, to me and said, if we start a new school, D, it has to be on my terms because I'm Kenyan and I know how things are run here, how they're supposed to be run. And knowing all of what he was telling me, it was very similar to the way we run schools in New Zealand, you know, with a board of governors, board of trustees, whatever, everything's done perfectly. And so I said, to, so we he agreed. So I then went to my husband and said, Tony and I are going to build another school, you know, have I got you on board or what? <laughs> he said, okay. 2014, um, on the 29th of September, we opened Tamariki Education Centre. Tamariki is Māori for children and school is coming up for nine years old. It is absolutely beautiful and works like clockwork. We have just recently been able to purchase a plot of land. So our school is now on its forever home. <laughs> and Tony does the most incredible job of running the school. And it's it's just beautiful. And fortunately, when we walked away from, from our first school and I had emailed all the, the sponsors and said, this is what we're doing, please don't send any more money, we're out. We can't. There's nothing more we can do to try and save the school. I think at least over half of them decided that they would keep their sponsorship going. And they said, gosh, Denise, you're bound to start up something else. And sure enough. So all that sponsorship just built up on the bank account. And so that when we did open or when we were creating, you know, founding uh, Tamariki, we had a pool of money to kind of fall back on to start to help start the school. So to this day, we have still have those sponsors and more. As I say, we did lose a lot, but we are slowly gaining them again over the years. And the school is now, yeah, in its forever place. So from there, of course, during my times in Africa and Kenya, over all those years, I would write amazing emails to family, friends, you know, and then um, Facebook, obviously, posts and all sorts of things like that. And so all my family, all my friends and things were following eagerly and really got quite taken in by this whole experience. And my description of my times in Kenya and the amazing experiences that I was having. When I got back to New Zealand and I had been documenting the story right back to when we met the family, or prior to that, meeting the family in this whole African journey. I wanted to create something for my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, my cousins, all the, the, the extended family. So I had, I had been writing. Uh, it was never, ever 
a plan in the plan to have it published, the book. But um, I was back here in New Zealand, and in 2015, I just fate would have it. I met uh, an African woman who lives in New Zealand, and she had just had a book published uh, independently. And I was with another friend, and she said, oh, Denise is writing her, her memoirs for her family. And anyway, in the next minute, this African woman, who's still a good friend of mine, she connected me with the, um, the publisher. I didn't know about it. I just arrived home one day, and there was this message in my inbox connecting me with this guy. He's in Brisbane here. And um, next thing, my book was published. And so I gave up my work, <laughs> my job in the corporate world and decided to spend a year marketing and promoting my book. So that's what I did. I did it for about eight months, and then I kind of got a little bit, mm, I need something else. And then one day I said to my husband, I think I'll take a tour to Africa, a tour group to Kenya, and show them my, and I call it my Africa because that's what it feels like to me. And he said to me, that's great, I've been telling you that, you know, but anyway, so. I don't know anything about taking tours or the tourism, anything at all. He said, we don't need to. Just create an itinerary of all the wonderful places and that that you go to and put it out on your Facebook. So I did. And I just literally put a post up on Facebook, my private Facebook page saying, hey, I'm thinking of taking a tour group. I'll take eight people max. Um, if you're interested, send me an email. The next morning, I had 52 emails. kidding. I know. I'm not kidding. So I said to Chris, oh, they do want to come. <laughs> People do want to come with me. So I couldn't. So I sat that, uh, that weekend and I wrote out a beautiful itinerary. I picked a date. So this was like August 2016. I thought, February. February 2017 sounds okay. Let's go then. So I sent an email back to all my, my 52 emails and I had the trip booked in 24 hours. How, how many did you take? I have eight, eight. 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 You just took eight out of the 52. Small group. Small group, no. And I stuck to my small groups. So then that encouraged me to set another date for another one. So I set another date for June. And that was also was booked out in 24 hours. So then I thought, oh, I'll do one in September. So I did the same thing. And so I had a whole year. I had three trips for three weeks each and took eight people on each. And that's how it started. And it just literally snowballed from there and flew completely by the seat of my pants for that first year. I think the first trip, there were a lot of things. I knew straight away things that I was going to change. And so by probably by the end of that first year, the third trip, I had everything sorted. I had my connections, my people. I had my places. Really, really super important to me was the whole community-based travel. I'm all about it. I'm passionate about it. So apart from um, one itinerary now, we don't stay in hotels. We stay in, in Airbnb, we stay in camps, uh, we stay in private places. I employ private, you know, local people. 
guides and transport and and that's how how it started and obviously every itinerary of mine includes a, a um a day at the school so by taking groups to our school built up the resources because anyone that comes on my trips or goes to a developing country always want to take donations whether it's monetary or in in you know items they want to take things and so our school we had to buy a, another container for our school just to house all the donations like stationery books you name it everything sports equipment rugby balls soccer balls we've got cricket bait you know all sorts of things and so we had to build you had to um, buy a container it's incredible i know we have had some issues along the way with renting land landowners are very difficult to work with they they want the money they want the rent coming in but they don't want you on their land and so we were, as I say, we were fortunate enough to just be able to buy our, our own plot so we won't ever have that problem again. We saw this coming and um, in 2019, we decided to, we were still renting, but the government were putting a road through our building, which was already on the property. We, When we set up Tamariki, that, that was like a vacant um, build a couple of buildings so we we literally just walked in there but they were moving in to put a little road and where the where the buildings were so the buildings were being demolished so we decided that we would build a container school so that it was portable because in our mind our vision was that we would always have our own plot of land at some point so we needed a school that we could move so we bought all these containers and Turned it into the, or Tony actually, turned it into the most beautiful like school. Two story, I think there were eight classrooms, big balcony around the top, a lovely stairwell, everything. It's doors and windows and beautifully brightly coloured buildings and that's been the school. So when we moved, which was just at the beginning of this year, he started the move into our, onto our new land, um, it was basically get the cranes in, move to school. Meanwhile, my tours obviously came to a grinding halt in March 2020. I was still having booked out tours every year. And, you know, for so I this, we, got, we leave on the 1st of July to go back. Chris is coming with me to run my first tour since 2019. And so it's a whole new world over there for us, and to, particularly for the school, which has now moved on to its new land. We haven't even seen it. And some of our kids have left because they've grown up, you know, they're, they've moved on now. So that's where we're at. And I've introduced new, new itineraries into my tours and I now run about five different or six different tours. I've just got a women's tour coming out shortly just for women, which is going to be very, very exciting and fully immersive, learning all sorts of gorgeous things and, supporting women's projects and things. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> I have like a million questions, but I just want to keep listening to you tell the stories because uh, they're beautiful. How many kids are at your school now? So there were, uh, we had up to 160 children 
And that was it. Tony had capped it at that. Um, they start school at three years old in Kenya, full day, full days school. And they go to grade eight or class eight and then move on to high school. Unfortunately, while we were moving the school onto our new, so the new plot of land is a wee way away. It's a few kilometres away. And so while Tony's been getting the new school set up, we're trying to get the funds together. The children have gone to other schools in the meantime, and we're just hoping that they'll all come back, or most of them will. So at the moment, he's got, I don't know how many, but we haven't got the full school roll back again yet and as I say some children have actually gone moved on now because they've grown up and they'll be at high school or or some have moved when COVID hit some of the families moved back to their rural areas thinking it was safer to be back and a lot of them haven't come back yet so we're kind of a little bit we're not quite sure how many we've got and how many are coming or how many won't be coming back but we're in a new area so uh, we'll get a whole lot of new kids as well. Um, yeah, it's very basic, but it works. It works beautifully. I'd love you to help our audience understand how you're bringing this passion into business. Now, you've told us what happened. It sounds like you just have lady luck on your shoulder, and I'm certain it's not that. There's something about you, Denise, there's something about what you're doing that makes this possible. Do you have any ideas, like the top three things that you'd recommend to someone who want to follow their passion into a business? You just have to do it. You have to believe in yourself. You have to remove any barrier because we are actually very capable of doing whatever we want to do. It's our mindset that stops us from doing things. I could easily have not done any of it. In terms of the school, who in their right mind would have just created a school? We had never had that on our, and tourism, as I said to you earlier, was never on my radar. I didn't know the first thing about it, but I learned and I followed my passion, my intuition, and I knew that I wanted people to see what I see and experience what I experience when I go to Africa every time I go. And I really wanted people, that to me is what travel is all about. We can all go on on tours and things and stay in hotels and resorts and things, but that's not digging deep into a, a culture. It's not learning and experiencing a culture or the people that belong in that culture. And that is what my guests take away, all of them, from their tour experience. I mean, we've all grown up with almost preconceived idea of, Africa being scary and it's dark and what about the animals and are they going to come and attack you in the middle of the night and what about the people and this you know the tribes all of this and it's really that's what I love come with me and I'll show you come with me and I'll show you what it's about and that is where I get my drive from it's showing people and how it changes their perception of Africa and I've never had one person on any of my tours who has not wanted to come back and is not planning to come back or wanting to get involved somehow or it just does something to people. And doing it for me, offering my authentic experiences is just what changes people because they get to see the real thing. They make lifelong friends with local people 
we can invite it for chai. You know, it's someone's little tiny two-meter square house. It's their home. And we go. And we do things like that. We're not um, bound by walls and pristine hotels and things like that. It really so, makes me think of it's a humanity connection. That it's very much it, about it, human to human. It is. It is. And so I'm very driven by the whole, the passion and the love I have for the people and 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 the, the place and, like I say, the culture and everything, and that's what drives me. So when COVID hit, and I think I went into almost a, a mini depression, I feel, now looking back. I don't think I did, but I felt it. I just felt like, how dare this happen? And what about my people over there? Who's looking after them? Nobody. It was a really difficult time. And so for me, it was not just about losing my business and my income which obviously shut down overnight but I was worried about those people over there what about our school our school closed down for 12 months all the schools in Kenya closed for 12 months how are our children going to be learning so there was all of that um, behind us and I honestly couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel and I couldn't I couldn't visualize me starting up my tours again how is that going to look like what What's it going to be like over there? And then <clears throat> probably this time last year or towards the second half of the year, I started to realise that, yeah, maybe maybe if I just put one tour out for this year and see how it goes and just do some toe dipping. And, I, yeah, that trip's sold out. But I've still stuck, just remained with the one tour for this year and we're doing Kenya and Tanzania. But next year, <clears throat> I've opened a whole lot of tours. And, uh, well, not say, when I say a whole lot, just four at the stage and there'll be another couple and that will be it But um, for next year. But I realise that people are travelling again and I am so excited about it. But that's the other thing. It's definitely an emotional thing and a passion and I get excited about it and talk about it and that's what drives me. So I did talk about entrepreneurial stuff so last year I think I probably was a bit tired of sitting at home playing fiddling uh, twiddling my thumbs and feeling a little bit sorry for myself which I thought get over it and I designed and launched a range of swimwear <laughs> for mature ladies. I'm not kidding um, oh goodness made from made from recycled ocean waste wow. I, I, I love know, it that's perfect it, it is, it is, and I got really excited about it and I um, went fully into it. I just did the designing, I found the um, resource, uh, research or this, this fabric that's, that's made in Italy and it's made from, gosh, fishing nets and plastic bottles and it's beautiful. And then I, I found a manufacturer in Bali that I loved because it was just too expensive to get made in New Zealand and away I went and I launched it in September last year or October I think it was just after me realizing that I could actually start taking perhaps my tours might kick in again and so I was on this kind of you know I had my my swimwear I had my tours my tours, my tours, my tours, my swimwear just went <laughs> down. And I just had, I just completely lost interest in it. 
So, again, um, I now have this swimwear brand, which I'm in the process of probably going to sell when I get back to New Zealand and as a startup or just get rid of the st- I just don't have the passion or the drive for it, which I but I did, but my tours in Africa, it was just... That's, that's where your heart is. That's where your heart is. It's so yeah. obvious. That's what, I'm sure there's hopefully maybe even somebody listening to this podcast that there's a business potentially for sale if you love swimwear. <laughs> Very cheap. And you're passionate about the environment. It. Here you go. But actually, there's a whole business of buying businesses. People do that as well. Yeah, yeah. So I think also I realized, and somebody, one of the woman actually in one of my networking groups she said to me one day Denise you thrive on setting up businesses or setting things up I go fully into it like with the swimwear I there was no stopping me no stopping me whatsoever but once I'd set it up and yeah my tours were simmering in the background again that was kind of it (laughs) Well, me, I'm smiling because oh, yeah. me and Vicky are like that too. The setting up, the building, that's the best love it. part. It's the most love exciting part. It. Like we love working with startups and people who are at that stage because it's so exciting and fun yeah. and launching yeah. and and building and, and all that work and research. It's just, yeah, it's so energizing. So mm-hmm. I totally get it. I totally yeah. get it. So with my tours, like, I, you know, it was all a learning process for the first probably, well, it, it always is, isn't it, with your business? Um, you're always growing and evolving and, and things. But obviously I realised that the things that I'm passionate about and love doing are creating the itineraries. I create beautiful, as I say, community-based itineraries. I love doing that part of it. I love hosting the tours, the behind-the-scenes stuff. Not quite so. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, you know, just the way it is. What about risk? Let's just talk about what's your risk mindset because what you're doing is you're going all in. There's no plan B. So what if it doesn't work out? Yes, risk doesn't feature very highly in my, probably in my whole (laughs) space. I do what I can. I do have a a risk management set up. But at the end of the day, yeah, it is a risk. And I guess um, I rely a lot on my people in, in Kenya and Tanzania and Uganda. I've got amazing, amazing guides and people over there who I collaborate with them. They have their own risk management policies. We get together and talk about that, about the risks, for example, even COVID. Um, that's a risk. If somebody gets hurt or something happens but that's it's just part of travel as well there's risk in everything that you do and so I I think I can honestly say that initially when I first took my first tour the risk side of things I thought about it and had my risk kind of management policy in place but it never occurred to me that something could go wrong it never has nothing has ever gone wrong but yeah you've I mean it doesn't stop me, put it that way. It's not a barrier for me. Yeah. But then a whole pandemic of- comes and then you relearn all about simply happen like to yeah. the world. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Yeah. Lots and lots of lovely, of wonderful people over there who look after us beautifully. I like never, ever, ever, ever in all the times that I've gone, been in Africa, whether it be with a tour group or my life before then. Uh, and I was in Africa every three months, every year. 
never once have I encountered anything that made me scared or nervous. Nothing, ever, ever. I only ever had beautiful experiences and very well looked after. The people are beautiful. They, yeah, very much look after us. Yeah. When you make those good local connections too, you will be looked after. They'll tell you to stay out of that area or this, you know what I mean? And that's the type of thing that people miss when they're just going as a tourist and they're staying at the hotel and they're like maybe taking a tour or something like they, they miss that whole connect Mm -hmm. with, with real people who, when you build a connection and trust with makes all the difference, but that's the difference between traveling and being a tourist, right? To being a traveler exactly is right. a very different experience. Exactly right. Yeah. And what you said about when you have connections, and I have really strong connections. So does Chris, my husband, over there. And you're right. People, they look after us. We have an adopted son over there who's an adult, and he is incredibly protective as well. Like, And not just as a person, but everything about even my business. He'll make sure he goes to the nth degree, you know, to make sure that this this is right, that's right. He goes and checks out all the Airbnb houses that I'm checking, researching online, you know, for where we're staying or whatever, or the camps, you know, the safari camps. He will go and check them all out and ask all the questions. And, yeah, so there's a, we have a lot of help. Couldn't do it on my own, no. But lucky I've got beautiful people over there, local people. You can see that you're a collaborator. Yeah, definitely a collaborator. And and I'm planning this year on collaborating with my tours to get um, some, you know, different collaborations going. That's a, that's a superpower you have. That that definitely is a superpower, being someone who can make collaborations happen. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're called Resilient Entrepreneurs. So we have to ask you, like, what does resilience mean to you? You've talked a lot about the resilience you've had to have over your incredible story. But what does it mean to you, the word resilience? It just means that I have this ability to be able to just get through challenges and I'll just make it happen. There's always challenges in businesses and you just have to be resilient and get through them and work through them and do what you have to do or what you think you have to do to get through those challenges and come out the other end. Otherwise, we would all fail. Our businesses would have, you know, we wouldn't last. I wouldn't have lasted in my business. I had to have be resilient. If I, to do what I'm doing, I had to be resilient. And it comes down to risk as well, I, that you've got to be resilient so that you're able to handle risk and things that might happen. And with my business, um, yeah, there was no doubt that I was going to restart my business and just power on through. And I think that's what it's about. Yeah, I just, it's all part of that whole connection of emotion and passion and think. And I think resilience comes into that for this business, for me. Yeah, totally different, I think, with my swimwear, perhaps. I might not have been so resilient with different aspects of the business, but I just feel like I'm bulletproof in a way in for myself. I'm not talking about in terms of leading people on my tours, but just in terms of the business side of it. Um, things crop up all the time and you just have to find a way 
and learn and whatever what works and move on to the next thing yeah I guess that's because your why is so strong your why your reason for doing it your reason for being you you want it so badly that nothing will get in your way that's so, when where it didn't yeah, happen that way that. because you didn't want it as badly. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's yeah. absolutely okay to let a business go. Another thing I, I think entrepreneurs like feel like they're a failure if they don't go all the way through with the business or if it doesn't work out or, or their passion changes or something happens. But it's okay yeah. to make that. That's just another business decision. It's just a decision you make so that you can then go on to do the thing that is your passion, that is what is heart leading you to. Denise, you are such an incredible inspiration. Thank you so much for joining us. Your story is incredible. I could listen to you tell stories. I, I want to come over for dinner and have a nice bottle of wine and just listen to you tell your stories because I'm sure you've got thousands of them. And thousands. I would like to go on record to say, I'm going to come on one of your tours. I don't know how. I'm in Bermuda, but it's going to happen. I want to take my kids. I've always wanted to take my kids to Africa and it. I don't know when or where, but I think I know we're going to meet in person one day. And I'm really, 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 really looking forward to that day. I do have um, a family itinerary just in case. I saw, <laughs> I went, I checked out your website. I saw, we'll put it in the show notes so people can have a poke and see for them. And it sounds absolutely magical and incredible experience. And I too like to travel that way. I want yeah. to take my children traveling that way. And I hope more people travel that way where you do go make connections really live in the culture, understand it, feel the passion for it, because that's when we connect with humanity and make and an impact. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I love telling the story. Shout it from the rooftops. And um, yeah, it's just, it's another passion of mine is sharing it. Thank you, Denise. Thank you. So thanks for joining us on Resilient Entrepreneurs. We are Laura and Vicky from 241. We love supporting entrepreneurs, especially with mindset, marketing, and motivation, which is why we've built an incredible community of business founders who meet weekly in the Level Up League. If you'd like to know more about it, look us up at 241branding.com.